All right, so now we move to a guy who's had a significant influence on me, William of Ockham. And we'll do a brief biography and just talk about how powerful this idea and this argument is and its relationship to UPB. So he's born in 1288, of course, uh, AD, in Ockham in Surrey. And ranked among one of the most important medieval thinkers. Like most people, of course, his early life is fairly undocumented. He did study theology at Oxford from 1309 to 1321, but left without completing his master's degree. Now, he was a Franciscan and therefore was relatively short on money uh, for theological reasons. And at this point in European history, there was a significant conflict between the Franciscans and the papacy. In 1327, the head of the order of Franciscans was, well, the, the, pape, the Pope demanded that he come to the papal court, which was located in Avignon, not in Rome. And he had to answer for charges of heresy because the Franciscans, one of their beliefs, of course, is that uh, Jesus and the apostles lived in poverty and, of course, many Franciscans also lived in poverty. They took very seriously Jesus' commandment to sell everything you own and give the money to the poor. And the Pope, of course, did not exactly live in poverty, to put it uh, to put it mildly. The papacy as a whole was extraordinarily wealthy. So William of Ockham was tasked with researching the dispute and... He dove himself uh, right into untangling all of these uh, complicated theological arguments. And he sided with the Franciscans. Now, he himself being a Franciscan is not too surprising, but I think he was fairly objective. He said, actually, that it's the Pope who was guilty of heresy. Because the Pope was continuing to say something was true when it had been shown to be false. Now, you know, accusing the Pope of heresy is almost a heresy itself. So the Franciscans, the head of the order, and Ockham himself fled Avignon into ostracism, into exile. They went to Ludwig of Bavaria, where they found protection under his, uh, his wing, and he continued his career, Ockham, and this is where he lived for the rest of his life. He was never able to return. And then in 1328, he was excommunicated, which is basically being kicked out of Catholicism and heaven, therefore, because he left Avignon without permission. And then he died 20 years later in 1348 in Munich, Bavaria. Uh, now, of course, that's that's part of, of Germany. So a long and storied life. Uh, his major works... Uh, four books of the sentences, some of logic, and quod libita septum. So what was it that made him so powerful? Well, plurality ought never to be posed without necessity. Plurality ought never to be posed without necessity. And it's a very, very important statement. And some... People have uh, rephrased it as entities 
should not be multiplied beyond necessity. And that's not something that Occam actually said. What he said was plurality ought never be posed without necessity. So let's let's take an, an example, right? So let's say that uh, you live in the country, it rains every day, and there are a set of footprints outside on the muddy road in front of your house. There's a set of footprints every morning. And one answer would be that there's a guy who walks very, very early in the morning before you get up. He, wa- he walks along the road and leaves his footprints behind. Another argument could be that a floating ghost holds a pair of shoes and squishes them into mud to make it look like somebody is walking in front of your house every morning before you get up. Now, the first answer doesn't require a ghost, and it doesn't require bizarre motives, and it doesn't require what would seem to be random actions. It simply says there's a guy walking in front of your house, and that's, that is an explanation for why there are footprints there. The ghost with the shoes floating uh, requires that you have consciousness without matter. It requires that you have someone who can float, and you require something that is both immaterial and can also interact with material things such as shoes, and for what purpose it makes uh, makes no sense. Now, then what you could do is you could wake up the next morning very early, and you could see that there's a man walking in front of your house down the muddy road, every morning at 5 a.m., or at least the morning that you wake up. Now, what you could say is, okay, so that's the explanation as to why there are footprints along front of my house that I see later in the day. Or you could say, well, you know, clearly it's the ghost with the shoes, but, but, you see, the ghost with the shoes knew that I was going to get up this morning or maybe saw me and therefore transformed into a man who walked and let's say you get up the next morning and you still see the same man walking. Let's say you go out and you hail him and he, you have a nice chat and he says he's just an early morning guy. He goes to bed with the sun down. He has to get up to milk his cows and he, he enjoys his walk every morning and you interact with him. Now, you could say, well, prior to me seeing him and prior to me interacting with him, he it was a ghost with a pair of shoes that it pretended to walk. Right. So you would multiply things without necessity. You have a simple enough explanation that makes perfect sense and accords with all the facts of reality. You're not asking for ghosts and other dimensional shoes or anything like that. So would you add in the ghost theory? Would you say, what is the best theory? Now, of course, if you say, well, but there was the ghost, I believe there was the ghost, then of course you would need to prove it. And if the the man walked by every morning and you never had any vision of shoes thumping down into the mud, but the man walked along every morning and you saw him, but you said, ah, oh, well, but before it was a ghost, well, you could never prove that because you can't go back in time. You don't have any video footage from the time before or anything like that. So would you be able to say, well, you can't conclusively disprove the ghost hypothesis. And this is... You know, there's a there's a statement that people make, right? Are you a hundred percent sure? Can you completely and totally disprove Proposition X? Can you completely and totally disprove that prior to you seeing the man and chatting with the man that it was a ghost with a pair of interdimensional shoes 
that was leaving the footprints. Can you conclusively 100% disprove that? Now, certainty is considered to be bad. And this has been the case for a long time because a certainty leads you, and particularly moral certainty, but even epistemological or knowledge-based certainty leads you to be beyond manipulation. And this is one of the things that people get frustrated with me about. I understand it. I sympathize with it to some degree. That, yes, I am absolutely certain of things. And people say, ah, well, you absolutely certain there's no such thing as a square circle. Yes, I am. At least there's a concept called a square circle, which is a self-contradictory concept. And because it's a self-contradictory concept, it could never be manifested in reality. Are you sure? Yeah, 100%. Certainty means you can't be pushed around. Certainty means you can't be manipulated. And so all the manipulators in the world want to be acidic about certainty. They want to rot it away at the base. They want to be termites in the foundations. They want to chew away at the base of your life so that you can be manipulated, you can be bullied, you can be pushed around. And certainty is universality. Because certainty isn't just certain in the moment. It's certain about something like there is no square circle that never has been, that never will be. It can't possibly exist forever and ever. Amen. Across the universe. Can never be. 100% certain. Now, when you have that kind of certainty, it starts to threaten. Remember we talked about this pockets of reversals that are needed for people to be in charge? Thou shalt not steal, but the king can take from you. Thou shalt not enslave, but the king can draft you. So you need to have these opposite moral rules. So certainty begins to push up against these opposite moral rules. And so certainty is a great threat. And the king, so to speak, has millions of people out there constantly pushing back against any kind of certainty. So certainty is upsetting to people. It, it, they, they feel anxiety when they feel certainty. And that's because certainty will sometimes put you in collision with the king, right? In, in history, right? Certainty would put you in collision with the king. So people like, it's almost like they want to keep you safe by pushing back against your certainty. So when you say, I'm 100% certain of this, people feel uneasy. And also it's a standard of integrity and knowledge that other people uh, find it tough to maintain because then they run into other people who try to undermine their certainty, right? So when we look at the universe, let's look at three uh, possible theories. Theory A the universe just is. It was not created. It just is. Matter and energy are forever and ever, amen, across the universe. And it may contract, it may explode, there may be a big bang, but the universe just is. Okay, that's one hypothesis. Now, the other hypothesis is the universe was created by a god. That's another hypothesis. A third hypothesis is the universe was created by a god who himself was created by another god. And you could, of course, infinite regression this stuff pretty much forever. The universe was created by 13 gods who created 12 gods, who created 11 gods, and a partridge in a pear tree. And you can continue to create additional explanations that aren't required by the initial statement. You can say gravity is a property of matter that attracts other material objects. Or you can say gravity 
is the manifestation of billions of tiny fairies all fluttering their wings and pushing things together forever. So you have multiplied because now you need invisible incorporeal fairies that somehow can't be seen, can't be touched, can't be detected in any way, but can still interact with matter and so on. You have created an additional layer of explanation. So when you're provided two explanations, take the simpler of the two. This, of course, is known as Occam's razor. Now, of course, in the modern world, we think of a knife or a razor as being used to trim fat and remove things and and shave things down and a pencil tip and all that. But uh, in the medieval world, a razor was actually used to scrape errors or mistakes off of parchment, right, To, to erase things that are mistakes. So it's another way of sort of looking at that. And I think it's fairly clear what effect or influence this principle has had on me which is UPB is universally preferable behavior. That rape, theft, assault, and murder can never be universally preferable behavior, and therefore the non-aggression principle and respect for property rights are universally preferable behavior. They can all, respect for property rights and the non-aggression principle can all be achieved by everyone in the known universe, asleep or awake, in a coma, walking around, uh, taking a nap, whatever it is, they can all be achieved by everyone, and therefore respect for property rights and the non-aggression principle, which are two sides of the same coin, because the body is your property, and violence is a violation of your own property called your body. So the non-aggression principle, universalized. Now, if you have a king, and you have to say, well, but the king can do the opposite, then you have to have all of these really complicated things. You have to have the divine right of kings, you have to have a social contract, uh, you have to have uh, laws with exceptions, but you're not really supposed to notice these exceptions, and then you have to have laws which punish you for noticing these exceptions. When you create a hypothesis which contains within it the opposite of that hypothesis, you need a whole bunch of mental torture to uh, justify that, and it never does justify that. It simply is supposed to baffle gab and gaslight you into ignoring this basic contradiction. It's the same issue with the Cartesian demon that we we will talk about in in more detail, but I wrote an essay about that recently. The Cartesian demon hypothesis. So are you a mind in a brain, in a body, navigating through the universe, through the evidence of your senses, interacting with other people, interacting with natural objects that have perfectly consistent properties at all times? Or are you a brain and a tank being manipulated, matrix-style, by a demon bent on deceiving you about everything? Well, both of those hypotheses require an objective universe evident to the senses. Because the demon, in order to create the science, in order to manipulate your brain, has to have a stable universe that it operates within where it can develop the science in order to be able to put the implants in your brain and to create the uh, world that you appear to be operating in but is actually just a phantasm or an illusion programmed into your mind by the external demon. I mean, if you think about the movie The Matrix, people operate within The Matrix and there are glitches within The Matrix. But outside The Matrix is a world, the world that we know at the present, with machines that use science to program people and turn them into batteries. So saying that you can't prove the existence of reality because there's an external demon out there doesn't solve anything because you would have to have some external reality out there that the demon navigates and is able to develop scientific 
realities to be able to program you, the wires and electricity and, and whatever computer code or whatever would be used to program your mind into believing this simulation. So you still have an objective empirical universe that consciousness inhabits, which is the demon in the external universe. So you haven't said there's no such thing as an objective external universe. You've simply said the objective external universe is outside of your consciousness. And your brain is still in an objective universe. It's just being programmed by a demon through the principles of science developed from an objective external universe. And of course, if you're going to say consciousness can always be programmed by an external consciousness, then of course, there's no reason why you would stop with us and the demon. The demon could have a super demon. The super demon could have a super, super demon. And you go on forever. But, the, but if you're willing to, if you're going to say, well, we'll stop at the first demon. Okay, well, if you're going to say there's an objective reality that can't ever be programmed by an external reality, well, then just the simplest explanation is that we operate in that objective reality. You don't need a demon. You don't need an unverifiable brain and tank hypothesis. You don't need to put arbitrary stops on what would logically be an infinite regress of demons controlling demons. If consciousness exists within an objective universe, which is necessary for you to be programmed by the external demon, then let's just have this be the... You don't need to create another universe. And you don't need to have an arbitrary stop on consciousness being programmed by external uh, consciousnesses, right? external demons. So the reality is the same in both. It's just in one you have an unverifiable hypothesis that goes on forever and has exactly the same principles as simply accepting that this reality is real. So, of course, the, the, the idea or the principle of parsimony, the principle of Occam's razor, you say, choose the theory that involves the least number of entities. Or choose the theory that is explained perfectly by the fewest number of basic principles or hypotheses. The fewest number. Now, of course, the principle of efficiency is known to animals and certainly it's known to human beings. Right? If you need to cut a grape, you don't get an axe because the axe is too much. You, you use something small that is sufficient to the task. If, as an old joke from Monty Python, you must cut down the largest tree in the forest with a herring, right? that would be a ridiculously inefficient and frankly impossible way to do it. The herring would be destroyed long before the tree bark. And if you do need to cut down a tree, you don't take a butter knife. You take an axe or a chainsaw. So using the minimum force necessary to achieve something is something that is known, again, to, to animals and is known to human beings and has been well-known even in the realm of abstract values long before Occam. I mean, Occam was the guy who used it the most and popularized it the most. But if we look at, uh, for instance, Aquinas, he wrote, if a thing can be done adequately by means of one, it is superfluous to do it by means of several. For we observe that nature does not employ two instruments where one suffices, right? So we don't have backup eyeballs. So this idea of take the simplest explanation is one of these hot knife through butter to cut through sophistry, right? Because sophistry tends to come up with really complicated explanations for things. And the idea behind Occam's razor is simple as best. Use what is necessary for the situation at hand, right? So if you just want to stay healthy, you do some weights, you do some cardio, and so on. And that's what you need to stay healthy. If you want to win an Olympic medal then you need to train thousands and thousands of hours and it needs to be your life and you need to change your diet and you right, this is what you need to do with your life. 
Now, the guy who tries to win the Olympic medal by doing some light cardio and weights a couple of times a week is not going to win the Olympic medal. But you don't need to train for thousands and thousands of hours to do light weights and cardio a couple of times a week. And so for me, the principle has always been, what if things are just way simpler than we think? What if things are just way simpler than we think? I mean, you make the speed of light constant, the universe clicks into focus. What if things are just way simpler? And so when I hear complicated, convoluted explanations that can't ever be clearly defined, and the moment that they involve another universe runs parallel to, permeating within, or whatever, through our own, the moment that I hear that stuff, for me, Occam's razor just kicks in. Occam's razor just kicks in. So when Plato starts burbling about the realm of the forms and the higher realities and the new amenal realm and the Buddhists start talking about nirvana and the, the place where opposites are true and up is down and black is white and it's the ultimate dimension, it's the ultimate reality, it's like, why, 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 why would you need another reality? And I've always been enormously suspicious. And instinctively, this could just be good old Anglo-Saxon practicality. could be any number of things. And also because I've seen the effects like that way madness in, in many ways. And in many cases, that way madness lies. You detach your brain like a helium balloon lofted off into the atmosphere. <laughs> I just was reminded of a, a balloon. I got a balloon at a fair when I was very little, maybe four or so. I got a balloon at a fair, a red balloon. It was a beautiful blue sky, beautiful day at the fair. And I got a balloon and they said, well, you can keep the balloon. It's a helium balloon. You can keep the balloon or you can put it in a balloon race. And if you win the balloon race, you win 10 pounds. It's a lot of money back then. Especially for a four-year-old, as you can imagine. And I remember saying, my greed, right? I remember saying, well, I want the 10 pounds, so I'm going to enter my balloon into a balloon race. So I let the balloon go and I watched it spiral lazily up into the sky and I suddenly felt a giant wave of sorrow that my greed had caused me to abandon what treasure I had in the balloon. And I remember looking at that, but I still can see that now very vividly, a clear blue sky watching that red balloon take itself up, up, up and away. And I watched it until I couldn't see it anymore. And I remember thinking to myself very clearly with this sorrow, I'm never getting that balloon back and I'm never going to see those 10 pounds. So this is like, don't release your mind into the stratosphere, into the other dimensions, into the other world. You'll never get certainty, and you'll never get value. It's all imagination and manipulation. People want to create this alternate reality so they can't be contradicted by basic facts within this reality. Right? They want to create these concepts of class. They want to create these concepts of gender. They want to create these concepts of king and citizen and you name it. They want to create all these concepts that contradict each other with contradictory properties so they can baffle gab mere citizens into giving up their liberties. The moment that somebody introduces one more element than is necessary, they've got one hand throwing sand in your eyes and the other hand deep, deep, deep in your pocket.